You're listening to the Weekend Warrior Show, presented by Cedar Sinai on ESPN LA 710 and the ESPN app. What's going on, LA? This is Kobe Bryant. Oh my God, that's amazing. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. I'm too much Scheidenfreuding. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. So great to have you each and every Saturday. And thanks for telling your family and your friends. You've become the doctor in the family now. Because you get to say at dinner, you know, Dr. Clapper says don't get a cortisone shot. So don't let them do that to you. I love it. It's almost like being a member of the congregation. And I'm not Robbie Clapper. I'm Rabbi Clapper. And you're in the congregation. Love it. Today's topic is all about bias. And it may be a difficult topic to wrap your head around. And at this early in the morning on a Saturday. But you know what? I learned this from my good friend Max Kellerman. I enjoy talking about deep, complicated thoughts, even if it is early in the morning. Because if I'm on the radio, you and I are going to have an intelligent conversation. I'm not interested in stooping to something silly to talk about. These are topics that actually relate to your life, to my life, and they're fun to look at with experts in the world of art, in the world of sports, and certainly in my world of surgery. I'm a surgeon, and I'm telling you not to have surgery. Now, obviously, you need to have surgery when all else fails, but it's my job to teach you Not with pills, not with shots. Be holistic. Do water exercises. Take some weight off. We get older. Embrace the beauty of getting older. And pain, there's nothing wrong with pain. Because pain is your body's way of telling you something's the matter. Your next door neighbor can do an exercise in the gym and not have any pain. Because their anatomy is different. But if you're born with a rotator cuff that is at risk because of the shape of the bone, the acromion, is like a parrot beak sticking into it, then when that trainer says, let's do overhead stuff against resistance, you're going to have pain. Your neighbor ain't going to have pain. You better stop because your anatomy is different. Are you going to let him give you a cortisone shot to take the pain away? No. You got to figure out how to make a blister into a callus. And that's what you got to do to that rotator cuff by changing your exercises. That's the philosophy. My bias is I'm a surgeon, but I'm also respecting that bias and telling you how not to. Michael Jordan, the greatest basketball player of all time. Yes, I know Bill Russell has 11 rings, but it don't matter to me. And Bill Russell's like one of the greatest of all time, but he ain't MJ. And when you watch that incredible documentary that ESPN put together called The Last Dance, it's amazing to to witness the career, the life of Michael Jordan. But Ken Burns, who makes the greatest documentaries, baseball, jazz, the Civil War, he's the man, he's the professor, he's the academic documentarian in this country. And he said, I don't like The Last Dance. You shouldn't call it a documentary because of Michael Jordan's bias. And it made me think all week, wow. Bias. But we love Vince Scully. He's a Dodger fan. We love Chick Hearn. 
He's a Laker fan. We love Dick Enberg. He's a UCLA Bruin fan calling the games. What's wrong with being a bias? The greatest movie critic of all time in art, Pauline Kael, she had a bias. And I can't wait to talk to Ben Lyons at 8.15 about that. So let's listen. Let's go to 1988 NBC, the divisional player. Let's listen to Dick Enberg in action. Number one. Number seven of the Denver Broncos, John Elway, voted by NFL players as pro football's most valuable player this year. Elway's rifle arm made for the shotgun formation. He will test defenses the length and the width of the field. And with the size of some linebackers and the speed of a running back, Elway presents the total package, leading Denver into the playoffs with the AFC's best record. How great did Dick Enberg do it? One of the best in the business. Using words, his rifle arm, perfect for the shotgun. He was a poet, just like Vince Scully, just like Chick Hearn being a wordsmith. But let's listen to Dick Enberg's feelings about Vince Scully, Chick Hearn, and having a bias, and why it's okay as a sports announcer and a sportscaster. Let's go to Dick Enberg, number one. Well, I guess it boils down to what is really good reporting or not. I'd, I'd like to think that it's all Scully's fault, right? I mean, I, I mean that's serious. It's Scully's fault. He is the best baseball announcer in, ever, as far as I'm concerned, and maybe the best sports reporter ever. He, uh, uh, without showing his bias, he has one, as I do and we all do. You can't broadcast a team's games and not want them to win. That's, uh, that's the only natural. But he's been able to make baseball entertaining, uh, he's been able to educate people to enjoy the game more. Uh, he's given the information as a good reporter should, and yet has a delightful personality that just kind of throws mortar in between all those other things. Can't agree more. Number two. And builds a... At times I wonder if he isn't, doesn't write some of that poetry before he goes on the air, because he actually speaks uh, uh, so, so beautifully at times. So I think he has shown that you don't have to be biased to do a good job of sports reporting, and I find myself challenged by that. I would never have called the games the way I do now when I did the Indiana games in the Big Ten. There was no question about, you know, you, you gave credit to the other team, sure, but I mean, you called the bad calls right with the crowd, and you were, no, you were a member of the crowd. That's exactly right. There's your bias. You're a member of the crowd. Number four. The only feedback I get that supports maybe that I'm hitting a happy medium is, for example, the Oregon game. I got a lot of mail. I made one very unfortunate comment that I thought was innocent at the moment, but apparently was not. Uh, the, uh, it split down the middle that a lot of them think that I should go up and call the Oregon games because I like the Ducks so much. And, <laughs> and uh, there, there's another equal number of letters who say, you Bruin honk, you know, what you've just gone. So I, I guess maybe I'm somewhere in between. Number five. Finally, at the peak of all this excitement, this one character is coming down and he's hitting me physically in the back saying, sit down, sit down and hit me. And I'm trying to give him, give him a stand of love. But uh, the, uh, the, uh, so it was at that moment I made the comment, I feel as welcome here as a Jew in Cairo. Well, that was really... <laughs> And, and I, it was no more than to 
to express you know, was an unfortunate simile. Unfortunate is right, but listen to how he backs it up. Number six. They express really how lonely I felt at the moment. It, I was not taking a stand. If you really analyze it at all, it shows uh, empathy toward the Jew. But the Jewish reaction to this has been so incredible, including a Valley State professor who had, who had 400 students ready to picket KTLA and, you know, threats on my life and the whole works. And I, I can't, uh, I hope that, uh, you know, I, I would like to come on and say something tonight during the telecast, but the station said no. We, I said I could say, you know, I'd, I'd give equal time. I feel like an <laughs> Arab in Tel Aviv. <laughs> but... But it was no more than an innocent remark, and the, and the overreaction to it, I guess, really is a, a, a sign, a sign of the times. And now listen to Dick, Dick Enberg recognizing Chick Hearn, the greatest Laker fan, and yet he's calling the game. We love the bias. We really do. I disagree with Ken Burns about Michael Jordan being the producer of The Last Dance. We love the bias. Listen to Dick Enberg talk about Chick Hearn, number seven. Uh, Chick is, I, I think, probably, is, as the gentleman in the back said earlier, uh, probably comes as close to the Midwestern or Eastern approach to calling a game. I think he gets more into a basketball radio broadcast than any human being could. I think I marvel at, at how he can speak so rapidly, uh, be able to get so much pertinent information in between bounces of the dribble. <laughs> And still, you know, get all the, all the score right and the players' names right and all the things that we just hope to, you know, we normal people hope to get. And finally, number eight. That uh, I, I, I'm, I marvel at his talent. I think he's a great basketball announcer. I think he's the kind of guy, and this is, there, some of this is affectation. He knows what he's doing, and uh, some of the feedback you get to people who don't like that is almost as rewarding as those, well, it's much more rewarding than if no one comments at all. And so he's, I think that, uh, that he has not hurt his audience a bit by his technique, by his being emotional, pro-Laker, coaching a little bit, refereeing a little bit. I'd like to do that, too. I kind of, I kind of envy him, but Coach, Coach Wooden said I'd, he'd rather I wouldn't try that. <laughs> Coach John Wooden. What about in the art world? Where do we see bias. We see it in the greatest movie critic, the Vince Scully, the Chick Hearn, the Dick Enberg of movie criticism was Pauline Kael from The New Yorker. You can be biased. She was. But if you know what you're talking about and you're good at what you do, like Scully, like Chick Hearn, like Dick Enberg, then even the people you're criticizing respect you for it. Let's listen to Jerry Lewis, the actor, comedian, on the Dick Cavett Show talking about Pauline Cahill, number one. Who else is good in the... Pauline Cahill? Yeah. She's never said a good thing about me yet. But you like her. Dirty old broad. (laughs) (laughs) But she's probably the most qualified critic in the world because she cares about film and those that are involved in it. I wish I could really rapper, but I can't because she's very, very competent. Mm. She knows what she's talking about. Let's listen to why she was such a great movie critic, number one. 
I'm Pauline Kael, and I write about movies for The New Yorker. When I write about movies, all my experience and reactions seem to come together, and there, there's, uh, there's an exhilaration for me, and I think sometimes it shows up in the, in the prose. I had always been involved in movies, but almost equally involved in the other arts, and I started to write after college and somehow everything seemed to come together when I wrote about movies. When I wrote about books, I was a little academic. When I wrote about the theater, there was something missing. But when I wrote about movies, all my other interests came into play and somehow there was some excitement in the writing that there wasn't in anything else. Let's listen to uh, the other sound bites, pulling at why she was such a great movie critic, number one and then number two. She was named a New Yorker film critic in 1967. Her, I believe, second review for the magazine was a 7,000-word review of Bonnie and Clyde. She understood there was a possibly a new moment in American cinema happening. It coincided with her appointment to that magazine, and she narrated us. You know, she narrated a certain kind of viewer, a certain kind of New Yorker reader through that that history, sort of the easy rider raging bull uh, moment in in American cinema, the the 70s, effectively. I don't think there's any way to write about film without defining yourself in relation to that shadow. I mean, not only because, you know, many might say she was the greatest influence on film criticism, but others might say she was the most pernicious, and those arguments are still kind of raging about her. She's a very controversial, I think, figure in, in the history of criticism, precisely because of how much she changed it. Let's listen to Pauline Cayley on criticism. Let's go to number four. Well, I think they come to films later in life. They don't go to movies as kids the way I did. And so it's an educated response. Often they started with Ingmar Bergman or they start with even later figures now. They don't start with that kid's sense of that stinks. <laughs> and, and that's a very important sense to have. But remember, when I wrote about Bonnie and Clyde for The New Yorker, I had over 20 years of writing about movies behind me. And now we'll get more into her feelings about bias and how to do it properly. To do it like Michael Jordan made the last dance, not academically like Ken Burns says it should be. Number five. I think the more educated I got, the more willing I was to write like a kid. And I think this is an important aspect of criticism because most people who talk about the complexities of movies, it's because they're simple. Uh, and the, uh, I mean, movies are not that difficult. Uh, you can go, and if you can't understand a movie, generally it's because it's badly made. I mean, at a certain level of intelligence, there's no great hassle in the movies. Movies are not that deep a medium in most usages, and the greatest movies ever made can be understood at one seeing. And this idea that you have to go to them over and over and over again to get that gem of meaning, which really you got the first time, uh, is quite absurd. And number six. Only bad critics impose an academic formula, and one does not need to rationalize one's instincts. One's instincts are the sum total of one's mind and responses. If, if you can't respond fully and completely as a human being, there's something the matter with you if you're so split that you have to rationalize your instincts. 
I mean, presumably, if if you're together at all, all of you is reacting together. I'm not some mechanist making a division between mind and instinct. If you like the last dance, you like the last dance. Stop being academic about it, Ken Burns. Number seven. Learn to respond as totally as possible, and you know what you think of a film when you see it, just as everybody in the audience does, because everybody's a critic in that sense. The difference between somebody working in the field professionally is that I go home and I try to pull out of myself why I reacted that way. Because what I try to do in a review is make explicit what is implicit in my reactions. Because you react totally, but then it's the hell of, of trying to write how you got that way. I mean, why you felt the way you did, why you think it's important, uh, what in it struck you, and what you think is going to be important for other people, how the film's going to interact with an audience. And finally, number eight. I think that the first response to a movie is the most important. Now, this varies. Some critics need to see a movie many times because they don't remember it. I have an almost iron memory for movies. I do remember the dialogue and the details. I can give you almost a shot-by-shot analysis of a movie after one seeing. And uh, this is simply a matter of having worked in the field a very, very long time. Uh, But also, my first response is the most total. Then if I didn't like something, then I might be influenced by other people. And so I'd go and start looking for what other people say is there. And actually, I'd start falsifying my own response. I think the first is the best. And afterward, if I go, it's strictly for my own pleasure. But I review it after seeing it once. You know it's good from the moment you see it. Bias in sports, in art, in surgery. That's today's topic. And nobody dances better in the world of art and the world of sports better than my next guest the great ben lyons will be joining us can't wait to pick his brain about bias coming up next on the weekend warrior show here on 710 espn you're listening to the weekend warrior show presented by cedar sinai on espn la 710 and the espn app What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. The most gifted physical specimen I've ever seen. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. That's the music from the movie The Gone with the Wind. And it used to be the theme for the Million Dollar Movie on Channel 11, WPIX, when I was growing up. When I hear that music, I think a good movie's going to come about. My guest coming up next is the great Ben Lyons. Rebecca, I want to play number two, Pauline Kale on criticism, so that Ben Lyons can hear this, because I want to ask him about it. Number two. But, you know, movies are so integral to to our lives. I mean, they can mean so much to us, and they affect us so much. But it's fascinating to to write about them and try to figure out the ways in which we're responding and what they're doing to us and what they're doing to other people. I think it's one of the reasons why people like to read movie criticism, because often they're so affected emotionally that they want to read a critic to sort out their reactions and find out if they were unusual or if other people... People reacted the same way. Fantastic. 
I'm joined now by one of my favorite people on radio, the great Ben Lyons. Ben, thanks so much for being up early to be with us. Thank you so much for having me on this show. It's a pleasure. Uh, As always, you know, I'm such a fan, and I have to say I am incredibly biased because the greatest film critic of all time is Jeffrey Lyons. I love That's right. (laughs) But my perspective is one of bias when it comes to that. My father is the greatest film critic ever. That's exactly. I grew up listening to him, still listening to him. He's still doing it. He's amazing. What about your thoughts, Ben Lyons, about Ken Burns, who made the greatest documentaries in the last 50 years of baseball, jazz, the Civil War, criticizing Michael Jordan and The Last Dance, as if you can criticize it, um, from an academic standpoint, yeah, you can't be the producer and make a documentary. Here's a beautiful example of the art world and the sports world colliding. This is your expertise. What are your thoughts about that? I love the conversation that film inspires, whether it's Pauline Kael or whether it's Ken Burns, a, a filmmaker, a critic, just people talking about how film makes them react like that's the whole purpose of this and i think as a as a movie goer we get better movies as a result of these conversations ken burns however i think um you know approaches documentaries through his lens of he has the the tools the time yeah he can be um a little maybe more objective or intellectual in his storytelling approach and you know his his films don't really have a commercial appeal and that was part of the last dance was that he grabbed the zeitgeist conversation about, you know, uh, the pop culture from 20 years ago felt still relevant today. Right. And mm. that's a different challenge that this filmmaker, Jason Ayer, is taking on in his storytelling. Look, you cannot, in my opinion, point the camera at something, at someone, at an action, an event, at a person and ask the audience to make up the, uh, their own opinion while you yourself being completely unbiased because you felt the need to turn on the camera in the first place. The fact Mm -hmm. that you pointed the camera in a direction, that in itself says to me that you are inherently curious. So if you bring that curiosity to the storytelling, isn't that curiosity a form of bias? You are no longer objective. You are inherently curious. So I think documentaries are, no, are not honest portrayals of life unfiltered. They come with the perspective of a filmmaker. I enjoy being a renaissance man in the, the life that I lead, the passion for sculpting and marble, the passion for surgery, and the passion for our beloved basketball. I won't even say the team because we all know how much you love the Knicks. My question, Ben Lyons, is where do you see the similarities in making a good movie and making a good basketball team? Hmm. Well, I think we saw from the last dance, it comes down to collaboration. You can have someone as talented as Michael Jordan. You can have Leonardo DiCaprio in your film. But if Judd Bushler isn't there, if the prop department isn't there, if Steve Hmm. Kerr doesn't hit that shot and Leo doesn't get on the, the, the special effects in Titanic don't pop off the screen, then we're not winning titles, right? And it's amazing mm-hmm. that Leo and Michael Jordan found themselves in that locker room in 1998. But the mm-hmm. idea that, that, that collaboration, right, is key, is so paramount to success in team sports and success in the film business. 
The writer has an idea. A producer champions it. People put up their money to support it. Actors bring their perspective and their life experiences to bring those words to life. It is an entire collaboration down even to how the film is sold and distributed. There's an art form in that. And so I think oftentimes in a, in a, in a town, in an industry that's fueled by ego and star power, we lose sense of that collaboration being key to success and it can make everybody feel a part of it like the great coaches do and the great organizations i mean bob myers and what they did in, in san francisco the last five years making everyone feel a part of this warriors machine is why they're you know a great dynasty in the sport so collaboration is key in basketball and in film i love how human nature forces us to fight the biology department makes fun of the chemistry department. The computer science department makes fun of the math department. The radio people can't get along with the TV people. They, they love to fight. So in art, Pauline Cahill fought. This is like Ken Burns is fighting with Michael Jordan right now about what really is a documentary. She fought with Andrew Saris from The Village Voice, who I actually took a class with in college. Uh, with Andrew Saris, which was, I could tell you about that one day, because of his feeling about autorism, uh, however you spell that, that the director really is the key signature in the movie. And she fought against that. What's your take on it? It's interesting. I I'd be curious to hear more of her thoughts on exactly why she doesn't feel like the filmmaker might be the driving force, because I tend to go to movies specifically for the filmmaker. When you go to a Spike Lee movie, you know that you're in for a, a unique experience. You recognize those dolly shots. You recognize the camera filters, the music. It's got its own vibe to it that you either gravitate towards or you are repelled from. I love filmmakers like Sofia Coppola, Francis Ford Coppola, Paul Thomas Anderson, Damien Chazelle, Christopher Nolan, Ava DuVernay, Ryan Coogler. These feel like events when you go and you're seeing the world through their eyes, I get, to, I get to live in their brain for two hours. It's a treat. It's a joy and a privilege. So I go oftentimes for the filmmaker because I want to see their perspective and how they approach a story that might have been told before in the past, you know, or, or might have been told, you know, a, a, a Guy Ritchie a take on Sherlock Holmes is going to be very different um, than a much more, you know, intimate telling of the story. So I love how filmmakers bring their own energy, their own creativity, their own problem solving. You were talking about the, um, the Godfather, uh, Dr. Clapper. And here's a great, great little nugget from the, from the Godfather. You know, the scene where Luca Brasi, who's played, uh, uh, um, by Lenny Montana, he's having a, uh, he's, uh, he's having a conversation with, uh, uh, with, um, Vito Corleone, played by Marlon Brando. And he's nervous. And he's stumbling his words. Well, that's because the, the actor, Lenny Montana, he was a pro wrestler. And he hadn't really acted. And he's acting opposite Marlon Brando. He's <laughs> terrified on set. He does a full day's worth of takes. Where Coppola looks at the footage, goes, this isn't usable. This is terrible. So he creatively comes up with another scene. There's a little pickup in the hallway where Luca Brasi's pacing. And he's going over what he's about to say to Brando. Well, they shot that after the fact because it explains why he's so nervous in those scenes, right? It gives you a little mm. 
That's, wow. that's like you in surgery thinking you're going to go in and replace somebody's hip, and then all of a sudden there's a polyp in there, and you got to right. improvise, right? Right, so right. I, Ford Coppola's approach to that situation might have been much different than, say, David Fincher, who directed The Social Network and Zodiac and is notorious for doing 60 or 70 takes of a scene. He might have gone back to the studio and said, give me more money. We're going to make him do these scenes all over again. So a filmmaker does bring a different perspective and energy to their storytelling. And the movie, I think, is impacted as a result. Unbelievable. Rebecca, let's play soundbite number three from Colleen Cahill to answer Ben Lyon's question of, I wonder what she thinks about yeah. other critics. Here we go. Most people in any field don't do a very good job. That's true of <laughs> university professors. It's true even of janitors. Andrew and, Saris. Uh, you know, I think someone has said that 85% of the people in any field are incompetent. And I think that's <laughs> probably true of uh, criticism. But the other 15% are often quite marvelous, and it's amazing how hard they will work and how much they will care about what they are doing. Wow. What do you think of that? <laughs> I love how she's able to balance this kind of snooty intellectualism mixed with this just everyday simplicity um, and common sense. It's uh, a beautiful perspective. And, um, I, I, you know, I think I learned from my father the value of preparation and research, especially when you're conducting an interview, which is kind of mm -hmm. a separate part of the criticism profession. There's some critics mm -hmm. who think you should never do an interview while there's others who like myself, you know, feels like it connects you deeper to the, to the films and to the mm -hmm. filmmaking process. Um, but I, I, as you know, in, in, in surgery, there are competent surgeons and there are extraordinary surgeons. And unfortunately to find the extraordinary, that's what makes them extraordinary. They're too few and far between. Hmm. Ben, can you hang on the line? Cause I got to ask you to teach us what, the eyes don't see what the mind doesn't know. That's what Dr. Ranawat, my professor, taught me. We need to learn from you what to look for. We need to know the eyes don't see what the mind doesn't know from you. So can you hang on? I got another segment to talk to you. Dr. Clapper, it would be my honor. I will talk to you <laughs> after the break. All right, thank you. We'll pay some bills. Coming back with the great Ben Lyons. I'm having so much fun as I always do on the Weekend Warriors Show here on 710 ESPN. You're listening to the Weekend Warriors Show, presented by Cedar sinai on ESPN LA 710 and the ESPN app. What's going on, LA? This is Kobe Bryant. That's right. Mahalo. Aloha. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warriors Show with Dr. Clapper. Ahui hoi. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. You're listening to the music from The Last Tango in Paris with Marlon Brando. What a movie. Mm. I'm joined by the great Ben Lyons. You know, I've been in practice at Cedars for 31 years, taking care of a lot of people in the movie industry, the directors, the sound men, the lighting men, the, the prop maker, the actors, the actresses. And one of my favorites... I mean, I've got too many favorites, from Dustin Hoffman, who's been a guest on the show, to the great Jack Nicholson going to Laker games with him. And I remember him coming to the office one day, because this show was on too early in the morning for him to listen. So after he's in my office, he's he's leaving, 
as he's walking down the hallway after the exam room, he turns and goes, oh, yeah, Doc, one more thing. Because he has a staff of people taking care of him. He says, uh, the staff, they love you on the radio. And he walks out my office. <laughs> what makes, Ben Lyons, what makes Dustin Hoffman, Jack Nicholson? It's a stupid question, so I apologize for being a layperson in, the, in this regard. You're the expert. But what makes Dustin Hoffman and Jack Nicholson such good actors? I think their presence is a present. They feel on screen like they're so in the moment and there and focused. Um, I think like anything, like any person you would meet in life, you would tell if they're comfortable in their own skin. And when, when they walk on screen, they wear the clothes of their character so naturally. There's, a, there's, a, there's just a comfortability in their authenticity that I think is palpable on screen. The great actors have it, even though you're conscious you're watching them because they are so famous. And for the most part, a lot of the role that they have played over the years, these two actors in particular, they're not like Johnny Depp where they put on a wig and a mask and change their weight. And you look on screen, you know you're watching Jack. You know you're watching... Dustin Hoffman, but you're able to put that aside because there's just an authenticity and an ease to the comfort in their own skin that they carry with them both on screen and off. There's a TV show right now that my wife and I really enjoy. It takes place in Los Angeles. It's still fiction, but it's called Bosch. And it's uh, the writer wrote detective books about Bosch for 25 years. Michael Connolly is the author but the actor who plays Bosch, Titus Williver, but and the whole ensemble, as a viewer, you get the feeling that no one wants to be the weak link. No one wants to disappoint Michael Connolly, who created from his heart this fictional character. And it's palpable as, I, as we watch this TV show. Is that what you're saying that a basketball team and a movie or a TV show is an ensemble where you're, you don't win unless you're a team with the role players. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. And I love that you love Bosch. I always thought the lead character was played by Matt Mallon in our sales department already. <laughs> Just like him. Um, but, uh, but uh, yes, I mean, look, Michael Jordan can go for 50, but if John Paxson misses that shot, they don't win game six, right? So everyone has to step up. I've been on TV sets. I've been very lucky over my career, Doc, with, with great leaders in, in the field, whether it's Barbara Walters or Chris Cuomo or Diane Sawyer or Robin Roberts, and you feel like, okay, I need to nail my little three minutes here because I'm with the best. And ultimately what those people all do is they, they empower you. They set you up so you succeed, which then the show succeeds. And if they're driving the show, then they're going to succeed, right? So it is really that collaboration that, that is key in creating great film, art, uh, um, you know, or basketball teams. Can I play a little game with you? Let's do we'll, it. We'll, we'll call it a one-word response, and then you'll mm. explain why it's one word. Okay. Hitchcock. Daring. I think what he was able to do with where he put the camera, the way he, um, his characters, his female leads at the time were so empowered, which was so different back then. Like he was daring as a filmmaker and one of my favorites. Spielberg. Magical. 
I mean, I, I feel his films have a layer, like almost like an icing on a cake of magic that you just have to kind of scrape off to get to the, to the meat of it, right? There's just a, a transportation to a, to a better world, even if, you know, right, for the most part, for his movies, right? It feels mm-hmm. like it's a, an ideal kind of a, a world in our dreams. So I'd say magical. Wow. Scorsese. Tough. His movies are tough. He's a grinder. His movies get into the psyche of the deranged and of the, the, the macabre of life. He's tough. And I love Scorsese movies. Talk about an event. I mean, right. my God, when people said, oh, I couldn't watch The Irishman. It was three hours. Well, you got something better to do than watch Robert De Niro and one of the great performances of his career. My dad hated the movie, and I loved the movie. You should see my mother's look on her face at dinner when the two of us are arguing about it. But that's, that's, that's what makes, um, you know, growing up the son of a film critic so special is that we get to have those conversations. That's fantastic. All right. How about um... – Actors. Meryl Streep. Iconic. I mean, Meryl Streep is just every time out um, is able to do something you haven't seen before. And she is she's the greatest actor or actress living today in, in America. And um, every time I interview her to get over the nerves, Doc, I just say to myself, pretend like you're talking to one of your mom's friends. It's <laughs> like talking to my mom's friends and it's totally fine. And finally, I know he's your favorite. You got to tell us why is Leo. No, he's not my favorite. Um, um, Leo's timeless. You know, if you would go back and you watch his films, I watched The Beach the other day. Hadn't seen it in a while. Boy, does it hold up. And, and, you know, he's baby-faced in it. But, man, is he terrific in it. I mean, for the life of me, the man in the Iron Mask and maybe uh, Shutter Island and J. Edgar Hoover might be the only misses. But those are foul balls. Those aren't swinging a misses. And mm-hmm. to be honest, like, he's delivered every time. Never had to put on tights. Never had to put on a superhero cape, right? Never had to do any of that. And every time out, it's just, the, I mean, he's the best. The scene, in, the scene in The Revenant, Doc, in the first five minutes of the movie when his camp is being attacked and his character puts the bullets in his mouth as a way to load the gun faster, Boy, that tells you everything you need to know about that survivalist, that this guy can live off the land and survive and and do what it takes. And sure enough, the the adventure that proceeds is is the best work of his career. You know, everything in life comes in threes, Ben. The morning, afternoon, the evening, the father, the son, the Holy Ghost. In baseball, you either strike, foul, or get a hit. Only you can come up with a way of bringing baseball into analyzing a movie that's why you're the best at it ben lyons i want to thank you so much for brightening our day coming on the show today we really appreciate it thank you so much doc and i want to just take a quick moment to um really plead for people to keep our city safe and to demand for justice for george floyd it's a it's a it's an unfortunate time in our country's history we won't stand up to this racism and i just want to see our city stay safe Thank you for that. We appreciate it. The great Ben Lyons. I can't wait till next time, Ben. All right, young man. He's the best in the business. Coming up next, I'll take your calls. The clinic will be open. The number is 877-710-ESPN. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warriors show here on 710 ESPN. You're listening to the Weekend Warrior Show, presented by Cedar sinai on ESPN LA 710 and the ESPN app. 
What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. That's right. Mahalo. Aloha. Start your weekend off right. Listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. Ahui hoy. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN. 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. You recognize this music? Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. That is the opening music for the movie Jaws. Steven Spielberg, I think it was 1975. The beaches are a little less crowded thanks to that movie, that's for sure. (laughs) Thanks for playing that, Rebecca. All right, Warriors. Thanks so much for joining me today. Last segment. Next week, my guest is a new orthopedic surgeon at Cedar sinai that I've worked with and really enjoy having as a colleague. His name is Sean Raggi, Dr. Raggi, and we're going to talk about his journey and the teaching that he's doing now and the teachers he learned from. And I want to look into the right way to teach, whether it's Vince Lombardi, Phil Jackson in sports, and who in art inspired me. That's really where... I want to go next week in terms of the topic. It's so exciting for me because I have no idea what the sound bites are going to be and who I'm going to talk about. But rather than stressing about it, I just cannot wait to see what I'm going to come up with. So I'm as much a fan of the show as you guys are, and I appreciate it. One of the cases that I did this week was a hip surgery, and it's. I think if I have time, I'll share it with you. There are so many different ways that a joint, uh, whether it's any joint in your body, as you age, it can deteriorate. Um, And in hips, for example, when you look at the x-ray, you classically see where the ball and socket of your hip loses its cartilage 97% of the time, almost 100%. It's where the weight bearing occurs, at the top of the ball, where the top of the socket meets the top of the ball. That's classically where the cartilage wears out. And how do we make that diagnosis? Literally on the x-ray, I will see that the ball and socket begin to touch, to kiss each other. We use that term bone on bone. We, We gradually see loss of that space as the cartilage wears away, the ball and socket get closer. Why Why is that something that we see? And it's a very simple answer. An x-ray only shows where the calcium is. Therefore, the bone is what shows up. We can see a kidney stone, for example, on an x-ray because the kidney stone has got calcium in it. As we age, your blood vessels in your heart, this is why you get a heart attack, your blood vessels in your leg, which is why people can end up with gangrene, for example, the calcium starts to build up, here's a clapper vision for you, like the rust starts to build up in the pipes in the sink that you have, because it wasn't copper pipes, it's an older house, and they used galvanized pipe that could rust. Copper cannot rust. Galvanized pipe can. So as the rust builds up, 
the size of the opening in the pipe gets more narrow. That's why when you turn on the water, the water pressure is down. It's not because someone turned the valve down into your house. It's because the rust is building up, making the hole in the pipe where the water can go through much more narrow. Well, your blood vessels, the rust that happens as we get older is calcium. And so when the calcium builds up in your vessels, I literally can look at your x-ray and see how bad your blood vessels are in many patients seeing the calcified pipes of your arteries. And I will tell you, when I do knee surgery, I'll use a tourniquet so that I can do the surgery without any blood spoiling my visibility, spoiling the swelling and pain that will happen afterwards by using a tourniquet. But you better not be using a tourniquet if you know that that x-ray shows that the blood vessels are not collapsible anymore, they're not spongy anymore, flexible, because they're filled with calcium, they're rock-hard pipes. And if you actually blow up the tourniquet, you could knock off one of those fragments of the calcium, of the rust inside the pipe, the, the, the calcification inside the blood vessel, and you can actually cause an embolus and lose all the circulation. In fact, this week I saw a patient's x-rays who had such bad, 82-year-old man, such bad circulation that you can see on his x-ray. And I told him, I'll be happy to do your knee surgery, but I already made a note in my chart that I'm going to do that surgery without using a tourniquet. So when you look at that plain x-ray, of typically of someone with groin pain and hip pain due to arthritis, 97% of the time, it's because the cartilage, which doesn't have calcium, doesn't show up on the x-ray. But as it wears away the cartilage, the two bones look like they're getting closer together because you've lost the cartilage. That goes for the meniscus as well as the articular cartilage as well as what's called the labrum in your hip. These are the different kinds of cartilages that we have that don't have calcium. And when they're thick and robust and healthy, it looks like there's a beautiful gap between the ball and socket joint or any of the joints. You see a gap between the bones in the joint. But as arthritis takes place, you'll see that joint space start to narrow at first and then completely be obliterated where the bone touches bone and you know they have end-stage arthritis. But this week was interesting for me because one of the surgeries I did was on a woman, a horseback rider, who had terrible groin pain, terrible pain going down the front of her thigh. And when you examine her, very little motion. I looked at the x-ray, and guess where I saw the bone-on-bone? She had plenty of space, plenty of cartilage on the top portion of the ball, the top portion of the socket. But where she lost her cartilage was actually in the other direction, not on the bottom, but actually in the middle, really where the ball meets the center of the socket. So if you, if you were to, here's a clapper vision for you. 
let's take your baseball cap and you turn it so that you can put your fist. So turn the baseball cap to the side and you put your fist into the baseball cap. Your fist is the ball of the ball and socket joint. The socket is the baseball cap. When you're holding the brim of the baseball cap, that's typically right under the brim on the inside of the baseball cap is where the typical cartilage is lost because, and you can take your fist and push it up against the inside of the baseball cap where the, the brim is. That's typically where arthritis takes place. But in this patient, the loss was where the button, the top of the baseball cap, way on the top where they put that button, the inside, the roof, but on the inside, and we call that a protrusio deformity. And sure enough, when I opened up her hip yesterday, there was no floor. You literally could, with your finger, push through into where her bladder is. There's an, there's an opening there. It's fascinating. And you got to be really careful with your tools to make sure that you don't violate that absence of bone completely. And those folks have a hip pain that's so much worse than the, the rest of us who wear out the cartilage on the top. Anyway, she's already, already to this morning walking around the hallways without pain. And it's just another gratifying situation for me. Until next week, I'll leave you with Volare. Keep singing, keep flying. And that's what these words mean in Italian. Until then, I'll see you on the radio. Nel cielo in